Please turn to me uh, and read 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, one, verses 1 through 13. And it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For thou absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. Since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of the brother if he is guilty of sexual immortality or greed or an adulterer, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. Thank you, Aiden, for that reading. This morning we continue on in looking in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're up to the uncomfortable part of 1 Corinthians. It doesn't get much better the further we go on from here. But it is necessary to continue to talk about some of these things, especially sexual immorality. Things haven't changed in 2,000 years. It's still a problem. So as we go through 1 Corinthians, and we're going to kind of review a little bit where we are. So up to this point, Paul has been talking about divisions. And in those divisions, he was primarily started out talking about they were having a problem with following after Paul or after Apollos. And Paul said, you remove the power of the cross when you follow after somebody else. And he talked about the great position they had in Christ, that they were sanctified, justified, that they were saints, that they had great possessions in Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, he's dealing with a very important subject of the foolishness of the cross and that The cross was used to save mankind, and that is foolishness to the world. And he sets up this contrast of the wisdom of the world and the power of the cross, and that they needed to understand the great power of the cross and what it was. At the end of chapter 4, last time I spoke, I kind of stepped out a little bit, and I did a sermon on valuing souls. I thought it necessary, because that is one of the problems that was going on was they weren't looking at each other and they were not looking at those outside the church that they weren't placing the proper value on souls. And the reason I did that was because historically some of the things that Paul talks about have been misused in the Scriptures. So we stepped out a little bit and we looked at valuing souls. As we continue on, he begins to talk about sexual immorality and the depravities going on. He deals with personal problems, marriage Uh, the liberties that we have. He deals with worship problems. And in that worship problems, he steps out 
And the one, the passage that we look at a lot of time, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, about love and how that love actually goes forwards and backwards. It goes through the members of the congregation. It also extends to our worship and our relationship with God. And he finally, he concludes in chapter 15, discussing the problems concerning the resurrection. So, one of the things that I've reiterated many times throughout this is Justin is gone and he's been doing First, uh, first Thessalonians. There's a lot of the same principles that Paul talks about to the church at Thessalonica that he talks to the church at Corinth as well. The difference is, is the approach that he takes when he does that. The church at Thessalonica was more of a what Justin aptly refers to as a model congregation. They kind of had things going right. They were doing things well. Paul was admonishing them in different areas, whereas the contrast in Corinth was, I don't know how much right they were getting. (laughs) That Paul was coming at them with strong words. As a matter of fact, at the end of chapter 4, he says that he's coming to them, and he asks them, do I come with a rod or do I come in a spirit of gentleness? But the other thing about that, that's very important that we understand, is the consistency. Paul's consistent message, whether he was writing to Corinth and giving them essentially a tongue lashing, or the consistent message in which he's building up the church at Thessalonica, the consistency of the message from book to book to book. It leads to the veracity of the Holy Spirit and what he was doing. It leads to the veracity of the power of God. And that's something that we cannot overlook. So as Paul turns in his thoughts from chapter 4, as we read this morning, he turns and talks about sexual immorality. And he, he says there that it's reported among you that something is going on, sexual immorality, to the extent that not even the pagans would do this. Now, let's set up some cultural and historical context before we go on. At this time, when Paul wrote this letter, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero had multiple wives. He had multiple relationships with men. As a matter of fact, his last marriage, after he murdered his wife, he married a boy. Made him a eunuch. And then dressed him up as a woman. Pagan worship in Corinth alone, was one that there was a temple of Aphrodite up on a hill, and every night as the sun set, there would be prostitutes, both of male and female, that would come down from the temple of Aphrodite into the city of Corinth to work their craft. And Paul says, these people, look at what you're doing and going, are you kidding me? Someone was having a relationship with his stepmother. And Paul says, you're arrogant about this. You're boasting in this. You see, the misunderstanding in this is the same misunderstanding today. The misunderstanding was the grace of God, the mercy of God. I can live how I want to. Because I have the grace of God and the mercy of God. I can conduct myself in any way that I want to because of the grace of God and the mercy of God. And therefore, 
I can do these vile things in the body. He goes on to talk about judgment. You know, Paul, when he began writing in 1 Corinthians, he says there that I've had reports of things that are going on. He talks about reports coming from the house of Chloe. So Paul was fully aware of the number of things that were going on at the church of Corinth. And he says, I'm not even with you, but I've already made a judgment in this situation. I've already pronounced judgment. Now, it was my intention this morning to talk about chapters 5 and 6 about judgment and sexual immorality. And I should have known better than to try to do that because it looked good on paper, but I also know my wordiness when I start talking. There's no way I could have pulled that off. So we're going to talk about the judgment piece later on. But Paul already looked at this and said, I've already made a judgment in this situation. And this is what needs to be done. You need to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Those are some harsh words. Those are some severe words that Paul says. But what does he mean by that? You know, Paul uses similar terminology in other places in the New Testament. What does he mean to deliver someone to Satan? What kingdom are we in right now? We are in the kingdom of Christ. The church is the kingdom of Christ. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and 13, He has delivered us from the domain, speaking of Christ, the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That we are in the kingdom of Christ. That we have been transferred into that kingdom. And Paul says, I want you to kick them out. I want you to deliver them to Satan. Now that's not some big ceremony or anything like that. What that is, is Satan's kingdom is the world. Now what he's saying is you have to get rid of it. You have to get rid of this individual that is doing this. But he says it's for a reason. That there's a purpose behind it. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now how does removing someone and delivering someone to the world and delivering someone to Satan, how does that save them in the day of the Lord? Well, the objective was you're a part of the kingdom of Christ. You're a part of the fellowship of the body of Christ. This is communion with one another. This is communion with God. This is us having a relationship with God, one another. And if you take that person out of that, that they're going to be missing something. That they would correct their lives and that they would come back. Now, unfortunately, here's the tragedy of what's gone on with passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Christianity throughout the last 2,000 years has taken passages such as this and found any reason to say that we need to deliver people to Satan. It's been used as a tool for power. It's been used as a tool for people to get their way. And that was never the intent behind it. The intent ultimately was salvation. 
The intent was to get someone's life right so that they would look and examine their life and go, I don't want to be a part of the world. I want to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. What do I have to do to get back into the good graces and be a part of this kingdom? But instead, they boasted. They boasted in this freedom. And he says, you need to remove the leaven. That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Have you ever seen leaven or yeast? Have you ever bought that? They come in packages that are no, no larger than that. And when you take that flour and those eggs and you mix it all up and you put that yeast in there and you have a ball that's about that big and then you go set it on a table and you come back a few hours later and then that ball is about that big. What caused that to happen? It was that small amount of yeast, leaven, that caused that to happen. It impacted the whole bowl to the point that it raises up. And he's saying this is what happens in the church. That little bit, that maybe one example, the one example that I'm driving home, it's going to impact the entirety of the body of Christ. It's going to impact, impact this portion of the kingdom, and you need to get rid of it. You need to get it out of there. <clears throat> Years ago, I had a job in Fort Worth, and I was a project manager. Project management is one of the worst jobs ever. You're stuck in the middle of, in my case, it was software development, and you're stuck in the middle of a group of developers, and then you're stuck. And then on the other side, you have the people that want the product. And these are the ones paying for the product. So they get to say, this is what we want and need in the product. And this group, the group that needs the product, always has what seems to be unrealistic expectations on how fast this group that's developing the products can actually deliver it. And you're the one stuck in the middle going, can you get me done some work faster? And then you're over here telling them it's going to be, you know, two, three more weeks or longer. I had a senior developer that when I would walk up behind him on his desk, he would, he had a, his phone would be out. And he had a, a mount, that he, a stand that he had made for his phone. And he'd be watching Seinfeld or baseball or football. We'd be like, man, there's no way you're working at optimal levels here. It's impossible. Every time we would have meetings and develop about what we're going to do or what was coming down the pipe, my senior developer was always negative. You know, it can't be done in this time frame. We can't do that. There's no way it can be done. And I would notice talking to some of the other developers later on that, hey, that can be done. And that group kind of languished for about, you know, six or eight months and then our senior developer got another job and left. The productivity of that group increased probably tenfold the moment he was gone. Now, that analogy breaks down a little bit because that senior developer wasn't fired and he wasn't kicked out of the group. He left of his own volition. But the principle still applies. That that one person can impact, negatively impact the whole group. 
And there's a principle there, and there's maybe a little bit of a sermon in there also of the positivity of that on the other side also. That a little positivity impacts a whole group as well. But Paul is driving home this point of the love, and he's saying, cleanse this out. Get rid of it. And you're celebrating for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate, not with old leaven, but with new. And the leaven that is full of malice and evil, that needs to be removed. Now Paul, had written to them previously to this. We don't, he references it multiple times in 1 Corinthians that he had written to them, and we don't have record of that letter that he wrote to them. But he had written to them, and there were some things that's obvious that he's circling back around that they were having misunderstanding about. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, So I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all the meaning of the sexual, sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So it, the misunderstanding was we needed to disassociate from everybody, and that wasn't what Paul what needed them to understand. So they were trying to disassociate themselves from people out in the world And Paul was saying, that's not what I meant. Because it's truly impossible for them to not associate with the world. And it's truly impossible for us to not associate with the world, number one. Number two is, that's what we're supposed to do. You're supposed to go into the world. You're supposed to go save those that are lost. So you have to go in the world. You have to associate with that a little bit. You have to work with that. And Paul was saying they had a misunderstanding. But he says, now I want you to understand something even more important. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a rivaler, a a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So in their misunderstanding, the irony of this is you are associating with one another and y'all are guilty of these things. The things that you look at the outside world and say, I don't want to associate with, but then you associate with members of the body of Christ that are in the kingdom of God and they're doing the exact same thing. How in the world is that possible? So he takes this aspect of not associating with people one step further. He said earlier, deliver them to Satan. And now he says, I don't even want you having a meal with these individuals. And he ramped it up a notch. He said, not about those that are just sexual immoral, but those that are greedy or idolaters or revilers or drunkards. Those that have these problems need to be dealt with. Now, here's the problem that the church historically has gone and done with passages such as this. 
has removed the intent and the purpose of what's supposed to be achieved. I have a very close relationship with Jason and Becca. I have to be honest. If Jason and Becca said, hey, we can't have anything to do with you. And here's why. You've got a problem with adultery. Not saying that I do. Don't get get me wrong. That would be a shock to my wife. You've got a problem with adultery and we can't have anything to do with you. My children, they're children whom I'm very close to. They can't have anything to do with you. We don't need you being an influence on us or our children. I get teared up just thinking about that. What do you think the motivation for Jason and Becca would be in that situation? To get me right. What do you think you would hope my response would be to get right? Because I need that relationship. I need the relationship that is offered because of Christ. And I need that every day. Notoriously, what's happened with this, though, is Johnny is a 17-year-old boy. And Johnny goes out on Friday night after a football game and makes a mistake. Maybe Johnny consumes some alcohol. Johnny has a wreck. whole community gets a word of what Johnny's done. Notoriously, or what's happened a lot of times is we say, Johnny, we can't have anything to do with you. And then years later, Johnny's 25 years old. He has nothing to do with Christianity or anything. And we go, what happened to Johnny? The misapplication here is Johnny messed up. Johnny made a mistake. The mistake needs to be acknowledged. The mistake needs to be dealt with. But shutting Johnny off is not the right course of action. It's been amazing the number of times that I've read and through church history, I've read in American culture and American Christianity that things like that happen. When that was never the intent. The intent was to really deal with some serious problems that were going on so that their spirit might be saved. Do you understand the danger and destruction that was coming their way? There's an operative word in this passage that I believe is overlooked so many times. He says, if this brother, if he is guilty... Not if I think so's. Not if I've got a problem with. If a brother is guilty of some of these really bad things, that's when you take this necessary step. 
Not as a use of punishment, but a use to get someone right with God. He makes a really crucial statement at the end of this. He says, purge the evil person from among you. And the gravity of that statement is, goes along with the gravity of the accusations that Paul is making here. There were people, historically, when you look at the church in Greece and Rome, they were using the church in so many different ways. They knew that people would be accepting. So the swindler could come in and swindle. He could rob people and manipulate people and get what he wanted. The drunkard could come in and the alcoholic could do whatever they wanted. And nobody would say anything. The person having the affair could come in and have an affair or have an adulterous relationship or have relations with a prostitute. And nobody would say anything. Hence the reason that Paul dealt with the subject of grace and mercy over and over and over again. Because it was being defiled time and time again. And Paul says, these people that do this are evil. Johnny make a mistake and getting drunk and having a wreck, that's a mistake. That ain't evil. We have to look at these in their proper context and what Paul was trying to achieve. Whenever we look at it from the viewpoint of a soul and its value to God and its value to Christ and what was given for that, we have a proper understanding of what Paul was trying to achieve. There was unrighteousness in the world, but it was also rampant in the church. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Think about that for just a moment. I want you to think about what Paul is saying and what Paul is telling them. He has talked about people who are evil, that they need to be delivered for the destruction of their soul. And then he says... My concern is not the outside world. We didn't read it because we're going to deal with it next time in the judgment, but immediately previous to this, he said, who am I to judge the outside? God will judge them. My concern is the church. And I'm looking in the church, and the church is full of unrighteousness. This isn't the world that we're dealing with. The context is the body of Christ is full of unrighteousness. It is leavened and full of unrighteousness, and it's being eaten from within. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is the second time he's reiterated this. In chapter 5, now in chapter 6. 
Do not be deceived. The number of times that Paul tells us to not deceive ourselves or not be deceived in the New Testament is numerous. And he's telling them that right now because they've fallen this pattern of deception where they think they're righteous. They're okay with God, but they're allowing all of this evil to go on right in front of their face. And they were doing nothing about it. There was homosexuality that was rampant. Adultery, fornication, alcoholism, people willing to steal. And they were okay with it. But Paul says, some of you were these things. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord. What is that that he's talking about? That's the very thing that Paul opened up with in the first six verses of his letter. Their position in Christ. He's reaffirming that position whenever he says, some of these things some of you were, but now you understand that you were justified, that you were sanctified, that you were washed, and it was all done through Christ. Why would you behave in such a way? And why would you allow behavior like this to corrupt the body of Christ? In verse 12, he says something that it really took me a long time to kind of get around because it just seemed to me that he just instantly pivoted that and I was like, Paul, where are you going with this? It, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You know, he talks later in chapter 8, more specifically about personal liberties that we have. He deals with it in the book of Romans a lot, about personal liberties that we have. And you know, the context in those places is always concerning things like uh, meat offered to idols and festivals and uh, days you holidays and things like that. Those personal liberties that we have, and he's dealing with those subjects. What personal liberty do we have for fornication? Is Paul really saying that all things are lawful whenever he just said all these things are bad? That's not at all what he's driving home. Once again, this is a, a reference to what Paul was writing to his previous writing. And he was dealing with this subject of liberties that they thought they had. They thought they had all these liberties so that they could act any way that they wanted. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So they had liberty, but he's saying, don't use these opportunities to serve the flesh. Guess what they were doing in Corinth? They were using them to serve the flesh. The idea in Corinth, and if you read some of the uh, things that were written from different pagan religions, the idea was 
Do what you want with the body, but tend to the Spirit. And Paul's about to flip that whole thing on its head. Do what you want with the body, but be sure you tend to the Spirit. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both with both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So he's beginning to flip this whole idea of paganism that you can do whatever you want with your body, but you just tend to your spirit. And he's making the connection between both of these principles that you cannot separate the spirit from the body. Well, I guess when you die, you do. But you see my point while we're here. You can't just tend to the Spirit and allow your body to continue to do all of these ungodly things. Fast forward 2,000 years later. The same principle remains. Do what you want with your body as long as you tend to your spirit. It's justification for Christians all across this country to conduct themselves and do whatever they want, however they want, and not think about the spiritual connection between the body and Christ. And I'm justified in doing what I want as long as I'm sitting in this seat maybe once a week, maybe once a month. That's not what Paul was driving at. There is a consistent theme that he has established through these first five chapters. Purity. One of the things that is a foregone concept in our country is the idea of purity. Purity in your spirit leads to purity in the body. Everything that the body does only comes from within first. That's a principle in Proverbs. Tend to the heart. Take care of the heart because out of it, everything comes. You don't go get in your car because your body's acting on its own, does it? Where does that come from first? Food is meant for the body, so this is kind of back referring to the, a little bit of Paul's sarcasm. The idea was, well, the food is meant for the body, and body is meant for the food, or excuse me, excuse, uh, stomach, and stomach is meant for food, so it's just a natural thing. The body's meant for these types of things. It's meant for sex. And we're just doing a natural thing here. And Paul said, that's not at all what it was intended for. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now remember what we talked about earlier, that every evening, Temple of Aphrodite, the prostitutes, male and female, would come down. And this was a real problem. Why would you take the members of the body of Christ and attach them to a prostitute. 
Why would you, who, has, who is one with Christ in spirit, then take that body and attach it to a prostitute? Doesn't make any sense. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one, with, one body with her? For as it is written, two, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. At what point in marriage do you become one? It's not when you say, I do. There's a very specific act that happens in which two people become one flesh. And Paul's saying, you're taking this very specific holy act and you're attaching yourself to prostitutes and defiling that spirit. I want you to think about in Ephesians chapter 6, Jason concluded his lesson on Ephesians last week, and he was talking about the armor of God. And he talked about the fact that the battle and the grind of the battle, and that it happens consistently, and it seems like all day, every day. And Paul gives these, talks about these tools, these blessings that we're equipped with or that we can have to fight that battle every day. He doesn't say that about sexual immorality. He doesn't say, gird up your loins and go to battle every day. He doesn't say, mind your spirit and go to battle every day. He doesn't say, get your mind under control and go to battle every day. Instead, he says, flee from sexual immorality. There, are, there is no gray area on this subject. This is not a subject in which we say that we can stand and that we can prevail. Paul says, you have to get away from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I'm going to reiterate what Justin said a few weeks ago because I think it's very important. We talk about sin and that the white lie is as bad as the murder and that it's all sin and God views it that way. But this is one of two instances where there is some sort of of gravity laid on it. Every other sin is committed outside the body, but the act of sexual immorality is committed against the body. Now, I'm going to be honest with you today. I don't know, I could be wrong, but I don't know a lot of problems with prostitution in this congregation. I'm fairly confident we don't have that problem. I don't know if we have adulterous relationships going on in this congregation. Fairly confident we don't have that happening a lot. But I can guarantee you sexual immorality is still a problem today as it was back then. The idea that young people have about fornication is amazing to me. 
And the boldness at which it's presented is even more amazing to me. A few months ago, last spring, I was walking into a customer, a restaurant, and as I was walking in, I opened the door for a lady coming out, and she was late 50s, early 60s, and she complimented me on my jacket, and then made a very brazen and bold statement in hitting on me. And I was completely shocked. Number one, I was like, man, you're desperate. But number two, <laughs> the boldness in which she presented the opportunity. That's all I'm going to say. So much to the point that I didn't even know what to say, which that's not very common for me. All I could do was go, uh, and I just walked off. But you know, our children are presented with boldness that sexual fornication is okay. The number of partners they have doesn't matter. It's still a problem. And it's a very big problem. Your body, as Paul says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's not just the physical body. That's the mind. That's everything about us. You'll see that I have as my background there what's called, it says, you've gone incognito. Now, for those of you that don't know what incognito mode is, and for those of you that are acting like you don't know what incognito mode is, this is the ability on a web browser to essentially not trace what you're doing. So if I get on my phone and I open up incognito mode and I go to five or six different pornographic sites, and then later on my wife looks at my phone and she goes through the history on my phone, she's never going to know that I was on pornographic sites. Why is that important? You know, pornography has been a problem in this country for years and years and years. I think ever since the camera was probably invented, it's been a problem. When I was younger, it was a problem. You, had to, you could go get magazines and try to get videos. But now, pick up your phone and open up a site. But you know what? We can go incognito mode all day long, but your spirit knows. What did Paul say about our spirits? That we were one with who? In spirit. That we were one with the Lord and that we were one with Christ. We're defiling our spirit. We're defiling that temple, that body which houses that spirit. And we're ultimately saying to Christ, I don't care. I can hide this from everybody else. 
I can hide it from my wife. I can hide it from my families. But at the end of the day, we're defiling that relationship that we had with God in our spirits. And it's something that we don't like to talk about. Those conversations happen all the time when I'm at work. I hear about all kinds of things. I had a guy the other day, he texts me some problems that we have, and I said, okay, I don't, I don't remember getting any text from you about this. And he goes, you didn't get this text? And flipped his phone around, naked woman. It's okay. Everybody thinks that's okay. And it's a cry and shame that the church and Christianity in the United States will not look at this for the problem that it is. That it corrupts the mind, it corrupts the marriage, it brings baggage into relationships. And Paul says that relationship that we have with God in Christ should be number one. Why would you want to defile that? Earlier he said you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Why? Because you've been bought with a price. Why in the world would you want to defile that relationship? I want you to think about Christ for just a moment. As he went to that garden and prayed that night, knowing what he was going to have to do, and he didn't want to do it, he asked God if there was any other way. I wonder if in the back of the mind he was going, This is the price. As he was being shuffled from court to court with people yelling and spitting on him. I wonder if in the back of his mind he was saying, this is the price that has to be paid. As he was being beaten and spit upon and mocked and having lashes across his back and his back being laid open. I wonder if going through his mind he was saying, this is the price that has to be paid. I wonder as he walked down that street with that cross, and his own creation spitting and yelling and mocking on him, and ultimately as they raised him in the air and suspended him between heaven and earth, if in his mind he was going, this is the price that has to be paid. For you. This is the only way that you can be justified before God. You were washed, justified, sanctified for a very steep price. Why would we want to defile that relationship? 
This morning, if you've not given thought to what God has done for you through Christ, think about that price. And then I want you to think about the fact that it was for you. Not some arbitrary idea, but it was entirely and totally for you. He wants you to be washed in the waters of baptism. He wants you to be justified and He wants you to be sanctified. If you have not done that, you need to do that. I know we've talked about some things that are very uncomfortable to talk about today. And I know that there are struggles with those things. And I have no expectation that you're going to walk down the aisle this morning. But what I will tell you is talk to somebody. This is a battle that we have in our society that we need to deal with. And it only begins if we're open and honest. If you need the blood save the saving blood of Christ this morning and need to be baptized, I ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.